1: Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. Following the decision on Monday for both Ford government and CUPE negotiations to go back to bargaining, we learned from the premier on Tuesday that an improved offer had been extended to Ontario's 55,000 education workers. Good faith negotiations had resumed while still under the threat of a renewed strike by the education workers who walked off the job for two days before the premier offered to rescind controversial back-to-work legislation and union leaders called off the walkout. While filling in for Libby, I was joined on Tuesday by our recovering politicians to give their impressions and thoughts on the events to that point. Janet Ecker is a former Ontario PC Education Minister, Gerard Kennedy is a former Ontario Liberal Education Minister, and Howard Hampton is a former Ontario NDP leader.
2: You can legislate someone back to work, but the Labour Relations Tribunal is a uh, quasi-judicial independent body and the question of uh, was there good faith bargaining is not necessarily affected by the legislation. And I, I think what the government risked was a finding that they had not bargained in good faith, that they had simply gone to the nuclear bomb uh, far too early in the process. So I suspect that we will actually see some good faith bargaining now. You actually have to engage on the issues. This is how bargaining is supposed to work. What we're seeing now is how bargaining is supposed to work and should have worked in the first
1: place. Gerard Kennedy, what are your thoughts about what's happened over the last 24 hours or so?
2: I was quite concerned. We've, I think we've seen, never mind the reasons, but dynamics where the needs of students, the needs of sort of a school morale, which is really, really important. The unit of education is not at Queen's Park. It's at, it's at the school level. Uh, was really on the verge of being mightily disrupted. If it continued, it really would have had an impact on education. Uh, We've got to be talking about the recovery of students from the education available during COVID, never mind what choices were made. There are students that are struggling, and they are the ones that lose out when there's labor disruption. And so I would share, you know, Howard's hope that this is going to be a pretty significant correction. And in this case, it was because, public, not just parents and grandparents, but the public generally sort of taking the measure of this relatively newly mandated government and finding it wanting and saying, we expect better. We want you to try harder. And, you know, I think it's a credit to the government that they they got that message quickly enough. Uh, I do think that this is much more encouraging for where the focus needs to be. And it can be in the negotiations. What do we do better for students? How does this work out and how do we align with keeping really valued public workers in, in the zone of, of being focused on students?
1: Janet, could you have imagined back in your day uh, as education minister uh, implementing a shortcut like Ford and Lecce did over this last week, only to renege on the whole thing a couple of days later?
3: Well, I think the sequence of events here is really, really important. And there's no question that being Minister of Education is a very, very uh, challenging role in politics. The trouble was is that QP went on strike. Uh, I think, frankly, that there were some backroom conversations between some of the other unions and CUPE saying, guys, like, can you kind of chill out because you're putting us all in a situation where our rights are being, you know, legislated away, potentially, because CUPE came in asking for 11%, and if you don't give it to me, we're actually going to strike, because they'd had the strike vote, they'd given the notice, they were going to be striking on Friday. And the government was sitting there uh, in a situation where... How do we stop this? The kids do not deserve to have any days lost on this. How do we stop this? Mm-hmm. Bring in back-to-work legislation. But as we've discovered, uh, the McGinty government you know, had brought in back-to-work legislation. Right. They got taken to court. The court has created a new right about right to strike, and their legislation got thrown out, and taxpayers had to pay $100 million in a penalty. So you can see the Ford government sitting there saying, we've promised to keep kids in school. We've got a union making, I would argue, unrealistic demands and actually going to strike. We have to stop that. The public interest means we have to stop that. So they introduced the legislation back to work. And how do we prevent what happened to Premier McGuinty? we do the knot with sanding claws. So it was kind of the irresistible force meeting the immovable object. You know, and I think somewhere along the line, I think some wiser heads kind of said to QP, could you please back off here and give the government some room to back off? And Ford took that opportunity. And I think it was a good thing to do to say, yeah, you guys get, you know, back into the classroom or back into the schools. Let's all go back to the bargaining table, take a big breath and try to sort this out the way it should be sorted out.
1: Janet Ecker, former Ontario PC Education Minister. Gerard Kennedy, a former Ontario Liberal Education Minister. And Howard Hampton, a former Ontario NDP leader. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. What do you think? Should mask mandates be brought back this winter? There is a lot of talk around this right now, what with not just COVID, but the flu and RSV all circulating. ER wait times in Ontario are at record highs. And in Ottawa, a second intensive care unit has been opened at the Children's Hospital there because so many critically ill babies and young children have been admitted. It's a whole different scene than last winter when we were all still masking in all indoor settings. While filling in for Libby on Thursday, I was joined by our tune into the town panel to get their thoughts on this. David Crombie is a former mayor of Toronto. Lauren O'Neill is senior news editor at BlogTO. And Karen Stintz is the CEO at Variety Village it's the complications
4: of actually implementing a policy because again, last year there was a lot of places that were closed, right? So we didn't have restaurants open. We didn't have movie theaters open. We didn't have um, sporting events open. And so, you know, it was easy to say, put masks on in school, in the grocery store. Um, now we have all these areas are open and it's not easy to say to people, put a mask on when you walk into a restaurant and then take it off when you sit at the table. It's not easy to say to people going to the Maple Leafs, uh, games like, yeah, keep your masks on unless you're eating. And for kids in school, you know, what they found in Hong Kong when they tried to do this is the masks actually didn't prevent the other kind of viruses that we're talking about because those viruses are not primarily transmitted through or only transmitted through airborne, but also be on uh, doorknobs and all kinds of other things that kids touch. And the reality is they go home and play with their friends and they take their masks off. So I don't think it's as straightforward as wear a mask in crowded places, because if you say, well, just wear a mask in a grocery store, that's not actually where the most of the, 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 the viruses are being transmitted. So when you start to tease it out and break it down, it becomes extremely hard to say when and where you should wear a mask. Uh,
1: what, what about you, Lauren? What are your
4: thoughts?
5: Yeah, I'm seeing no urgency in terms of bringing mask mandates back. Uh, public health officials and government officials seem very reticent to kind of put that mandate in place again. Um, I think it's important to note, like Karen said, a lot of the viruses going around are not spread the same way that COVID is. So um, while it's important to have masks on to prevent the transmission of COVID, I think There should also be a lot of emphasis still placed on washing hands and kind of staying staying home when you're sick. So I think sometimes when we just put masks, mask mandates, mask mandates, everyone thinks that, you know, okay, we're good. I'm safe. I have a mask on. Whereas there are other things we should be doing as well. So I don't know if they're ever going to mandate it again. But I mean, individual businesses can certainly say, you know, unless you have a, a pub you know, another health condition, um, please re- request that you wear a mask. And I think that every person has the right to wear a mask. And like, I know I wear a mask when I'm on public transit, certainly. right. Um, and so I, I just don't know, based on all the backlash last year and everything that happened in Ottawa, if uh, how eager any government officials are to put <laughs> mandates in place again. But I do think there should be a strong public health message that, you know, mask when necessary and wash your hands, wash your hands all the time, <laughs> like the beginning. Uh, is David Crombie with us now?
6: It seems to me that, that they've been warning us for some time now that it's going to get harder in the fall and in the winter, complicated, of course, by, by, uh, uh, by other diseases coming at us as well, the normal flu. Um, so two things to occur to me. One, uh, it, it, it seems to me that, that there should always be personal choice, except if the, if the health authorities uh, say to us they want to mandate masks then that's, that's okay with me. Um, we don't, we don't, we don't have these people in place just to give us advice. They only, we need to make sure that we're, we're protecting ourselves, but we're also protecting other people. So I don't have a lot of patience with people who think that they have a personal choice over and above a public authority when there is a, a public demand.
4: The reality is there was a lot of other things we had in place other than masks. You know, we had a lot of physical distancing. We had a lot of closures. We had a lot of limitations on gathering. And so to simply say that if we put masks on, we would stop the spread of this latest virus, I don't think we can make that leap. And if we could, then there's a strong case to say why we would put masks, why we would make a mask mandate again. But again, each of these viruses are slightly different. And the way COVID is transmitted is not the same way these other viruses are transmitted. And so that's why I wouldn't frame it as a personal choice matter. I would frame it as a you know, is there the data to support this kind of right um, mandate? Right. And, and to, be, to be candid with you, I don't think there is. And I don't think, I think it's a false security to wear a mask and then expect you might not get some of these illnesses. Okay. You might. You mean, right. so we're asking people to wear masks and they're still not being protected. And I'm not sure that's a good thing either.
1: Karen Stintz, CEO at Variety Village, David Crombie, former mayor of Toronto, and Lauren O'Neill, senior news editor at BlogTO, Fightback's Tune Into the Town panel. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break... How serious is the shortage of children's cold and flu medications? And paying tribute to the last of the World War II veterans. Both of these topics are
0: next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zuma Radio.
1: Welcome back. It continues to be a concern for parents and grandparents of young children. In addition to shortages of children's Tylenol and Advil, we've learned about another shortage, liquid amoxicillin. It's a first-line antibiotic used to treat a range of bacterial infections, from bronchitis to ear infections. And according to Health Canada, is in short supply. While filling in for Libby on Wednesday, Marissa Lennox was joined by Ontario Pharmacists Association CEO Justin Bates to talk about the shortage and how to get around it.
7: Well, certainly is a an anxious time for people when, you know, essential medicines like this are in short supply. And yes, it's a perfect storm. We have respiratory illnesses on the increase. So we have uh, what we anticipate to be a severe cold and flu season. And we continue to see the outbreak of uh, COVID, all of which put a strain on the -the over-the-counter medications for cold and flu and pain and fever relief, as well as now amoxicillin. But it is a demand side issue as opposed to supply interruptions or labor shortages in factories or any issues sourcing the active product ingredient. It's just the fact that demand is well outpacing supply and we're in this catch-up mode uh, in a constant cycle at this at this stage.
8: So that's interesting because I was going to ask why the shortage is it supply change or demand? But if it is in fact driven by demand, how long before the alternative? So the alternative to the amoxicillin is something like in azithromycin. How long before that is in short supply too?
7: Yeah, so we have a few options for the children's amoxicillin. Uh, many pharmacies can compound a solution that have the raw ingredients. So that's sort of one of our. Uh, options. The second option would be to take the adult uh, tablets uh, and uh, split those, and either the child can swallow the half tablet or you can crush it and put it into some applesauce uh, or other types of food to make it more digestible. And also, as you mentioned, uh, looking at alternatives. There are a number of other uh, anti- or uh, antibiotics that will help with infections, and, and I think that Obviously, as you put more strain on other things, uh, it does increase the risk of further reductions. But we also know the manufacturers are producing more and trying to up their production. So hopefully, with all of those mechanisms in place, as well as some rationing and making sure we're not over-prescribing for antibiotics, that we look at home-based remedies for things like fever and colds, um, that we can hopefully uh, avoid any further exasperation of this.
8: Without an antibiotic, I mean, you mentioned there were some alternatives, but I can't imagine, that's the first line antibiotic people go to, are the the amoxicillin or the penicillin. And so without it, I imagine it would be very difficult to treat these kinds of infections.
7: It is, and that's why it's so concerning. Uh, and I think we need to look at this from uh, the holistic approach of why do we have so few suppliers of such an essential medicine, its first line of defense against many of these infections. And we only have four suppliers, of which uh, many of them outsource the active product ingredients and the production. So it's not even done in the Canadian uh, borders, uh, within our, our borders. And I think domestic capacity is such an important topic to stabilize our supply chain, because whether it's demand or other interruptions that could happen... Drug shortages is something that's a very real threat to the health of Canadians. And we need to make investments in uh, factories and plants in Canada and making sure that we're less dependent on uh, third
8: parties. It is so true. And are we? Uh, is the government taking steps to do just that?
7: Well, the government has been focused on the cost side for well over a decade. So there has been uh, a lot of deflationary pressures and these companies look at their their profit, and if it's not profitable, they they stop making it. So you get, in all kinds of therapeutic areas, less suppliers, um, and a a decision has to be made. And it's somewhat philosophical in that, do we want to be the lowest cost jurisdiction, or do we want to make sure we have fair and reasonable reimbursement policies and enough suppliers in each of the categories so that we don't introduce um the volatility that we're seeing in our supply chain. I mean, discussions right now are happening with government around further price reductions and we're starting to see the cause and effect of that.
8: Any idea as to when this situation will be rectified? I expect this to be
7: uh volatile throughout the winter. I I, I don't think we're going to suddenly see this um uh, rectified in, you know, a particular date. I think it's something we're going to have to monitor. We're going to have to look at alternatives and and continue to ration.
1: Justin Bates, CEO of the Ontario Pharmacists Association. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Another Remembrance Day has come and gone. But I'd like to replay for you some of my conversations with both Honorary Lieutenant General Richard Romer and Jack Rind, veteran of the Royal Canadian Artillery, both of whom served in World War II. Now 102 years old, Jack Rind joined me first on Thursday, the day before Remembrance Day, with his reflections.
9: World War II was was the, uh, quote, quote, I'm quoting the big, the biggest and deadliest war in on in history involves three hundred countries and and the greatest mass uh, destruction you could think of, and it was when you think of the the hundred thousand Canadians and and the that uh, were killed in the two wars and 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 the terrible terrible. Civilian casualties. I mean, and, and I can tell you that war, war is so crazy. We we wrecked the country. We ruined Italy. We the civilians suffered tremendously and being killed and and so on. And 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 then, as far as I was concerned, war is so stupid because one day I'd be killing my uh, the enemy. I'd be killing Germans soldiers with my guns. The next day, we'd capture some, and they'd be just guys like my guys. They'd come from families at home, and it was just ridiculous anyway.
1: How much has being a World War II veteran meant to your life?
9: Uh, not not very much. No. Once, once it was over, uh, uh, the man that had uh, uh, trained me in, in, in Canada when it was an officer who was the, the 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 president of a life company and he hired me and and so on. And I ended up as president of that life company and so on. And so, and I married a wonderful, wonderful mm-hmm. wife and the war was something in my past. That, yeah.
0: Well, you
1: know, it's, it's, uh, it is a...
9: Occasionally bl- when I make a mistake, of judgment and turn the wrong way on a road or something i think god if i would, if i made that mistake while i was leading my troop it would be serious we'd be in enemy territory but i don't think of the war anymore no it doesn't mean anything to me any i mean i it meant a huge amount in my life yes it it matured me in a great way and uh, i could go on about it but yeah. no
1: And now we go to a very special guest, Zoomer Media friend, General Richard Romer, Ontario Lieutenant General of the Canadian Armed Forces. Now, what are you thinking about? uh, You and I last spoke uh, on the anniversary of D-Day, and we also, you reflected then on Queen Elizabeth's 70 years as well. What are you thinking about as we approach Remembrance Day 2022?
6: Well, I'm thinking about being alive and well and... uh in terms of the military experience I've had over the long period from the time I was 18. I walked into the recruiting office in London, Ontario. All the paperwork had been done, and I joined the Air Force on January the 24th, 1942. And I'm still there as the Honorary Lieutenant General of the Canadian Armed Forces, the Honorary Lieutenant General. There's only one of me, thank goodness for that. But I've had all kinds of experience, wartime and peacetime. Yeah. that has been really, for me, very fulfilling, and I'm so honored to be able to continue.
1: Uh, how has being a World War II veteran shaped your life? How, how much has it meant to your life?
6: Well, being a World War II veteran has shaped my life right from the very beginning. I wanted to fly, and I became very good at it once I got in and got in, into operations. I did 135 low-level missions, being fired at all the time, starting in, in on D-Day and through uh, Normandy, uh, France, Belgium, and, uh, Holland, and up into Germany. So I just had a year and a half of that. By 1952, I was commander of the first two Canadian jet fighter squadrons in my capacity as a reservist. And I then stayed on in the reserve force, got my law degree, practiced law, joined the air reserve, uh, and kept on flying uh, with them after I retired from that. I'm 98. I stopped playing about two years two ago.
1: Two years ago, right.
6: So that's a good time to stop.
1: <laughs> you know what? That's a pretty good run. <laughs> uh, yeah, good run. Honorary Lieutenant General Richard Romer and Jack Rind, veteran of the Royal Canadian Artillery, both World War II veterans. Lest we forget. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back knockout call of the week.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown.
1: Fight Back with Libby Zneimer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. Sita in Mississauga phoned with thoughts on whether we need to go back to mandatory masking.
3: We should have a mask mandate as long as COVID is around. We don't need to adapt. We want to get rid of COVID. And if people don't want to take the vaccine maybe the masking will help a lot.
1: Kelly in Toronto also phoned about the call for mask mandates.
3: No, we do not need to bring back mask mandates. We need to build up our immune systems and need to adapt to these viruses that are, you know, going to be continual. Uh, The flu season happens every year, Um, you know, and it didn't happen because we were all masked up and we were all staying apart. Um, that is why now we're seeing it again. But we need to live, and I do not I'm not for mass mandates.
0: And now, Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week.
1: There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week is Pat in Toronto, who phoned about negotiations for Ontario's education workers.
10: Hopefully, they're going to go to binding arbitration. I mean, that's the provision that's been in our industrial relations for probably 50 years. Um, government often doesn't like it because sometimes the awards are higher than government yeah. wants to give. Um, interesting. I took a look at Mr. Lecce's income and how much it's gone up, and you must you must admit sometimes the people at the bottom are the ones who are suffering. And my last point, which I have made many times, our problem, which ties in with the financing of people in retirement and the fact that we're all living a lot longer, is how are we financing people's longevity, in other words, in the seniors' homes? And Kathleen Wynne had a suggestion with regard to increasing CPP. And I think it is so, so, so important. And I'm just hoping that government will do something with that because we're all living an extra 10, 15, Mm -hmm. 20 years over what used to be the rules.
1: That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca Follow us on Twitter at Fight Back Libby and call our Fight Back voicemail anytime at 416 367 9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back.
0: The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeeb Hadi with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.